0: Hi there. Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's the year 168. The great city of Rome welcomes your return, a bit too eagerly. The prevailing mood, in fact, is desperation. The city is unmistakably different overrun by a monstrous pestilence that has only spread in the two years since you left. All around you are reminders of the plague. Corpses piling in alleys faster than they can be burned, the stench of death polluting the late autumn air. You're frightened, as you should be. This plague strikes down about a third of those who contract it. And you know you're as vulnerable as any of your patients. Whether they live or die seems to have little to do with your input. All you can do is make them more comfortable as their bodies battle it out. That's why you fled the city in the first place. But now the emperor has put his foot down, and so you're back. Documenting what you see is the only definite contribution you can make. Hand-weary, you lay down your pen. Two more patients gone today. You scan what you just wrote. Fever, diarrhea, ulcerations, vomiting. The standard litany. You stand and stretch. Here you are, back in Rome. And you're not sure you'll ever leave again. Not at least before this terrifying illness releases the city. Provided, that is, it spares you. A physician largely powerless against it. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to our show, Working Over Time, where we examine society through the lens of work, over time and across cultures. Today, we've got an appointment with the doctor. Don't worry, we're not going to be patients, which is a relief, no doubt. But we are shadowing a doctor in ancient Rome, when the practice of medicine was a little bit different than it is today. Antibiotics, we love you! But despite their less sophisticated understanding of medical science, the tools and techniques of ancient Romans hit surprisingly close to the mark in terms of human anatomy and its ailments. In fact, they were pretty darned effective with cinnamons, scalpels, and the odd bone axe. So let's duck into the surgical theater to learn more now. Today, my guest is Sarah Yeomans. She is an archaeologist and art historian specializing in the imperial period of ancient Rome. She's a Fulbright Fellow and a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Southern California, where she's currently finishing her dissertation on ancient Roman medicine, its practitioners, and the impact of pandemic events on the empire. She has excavated in Italy, Turkey, Israel, and France, and she lived in Rome for six years, during which time she became a certified archaeological speleologist which I can't wait to hear more about. But she spent a great deal of time exploring the city's subterranean world. She holds an MA in archaeology from the University of Sheffield and an MA in art history from the University of Southern California. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Hello. It's so nice to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, so we're going to be talking about ancient Roman physicians today, but yeah, you got to fill us in on this archeological speleology first.
1: (laughs) It's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. Um, I had
0: to practice the word. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: Basically what it is, is urban spelunking. Uh, So this was a certification training program that I did in Rome, uh, where they train you to conduct archeological surveys underground. Um, And in a city like Rome, I always describe it as sort of an urban lasagna, where you have layer upon layer upon layer. And every time um, they undertake construction in the city, uh, they will almost always uh, sort of encounter an archeological layer. Yeah, rooms, no doubt. Um, catacombs, uh, aqueducts, this sort of thing. So, when that happens, they call in the archaeological spaleologists and drop us down there to check out and check it out, see what's going on under there. So, I've been in you know all sorts of subterranean spaces from beautiful domus structures, you know, these are uh, ancient homes to sewer systems. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that is so cool.
0: That's and th- I'm gonna say that's kind of badass, too. You have special spelunk- <laughs> Equipment?
1: Um, well, it, not a like, hard hats uh, and you know harnesses, this sort of thing. Um, but you have engineers that are checking it out first to make sure it's safe for us to go down there. That's good. Um, yeah. So, as flashlights, definitely. Um, and in the case of sewers, you want to make sure you have a
0: biohazard suit. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah, S- hand sanitizer doesn't cut it when you've been right. spelunking in the sewers. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a whole world underneath the city and and a lot of, um, Modern cities that sit on top of ancient cities are like this. And uh, You know, the, the ancient layers are woven into the modern urban fabric. Uh, Istanbul is another example. So, I was just
0: going to say, I went down into, it was, um, you, you went down in a boat. It was like a huge underground Roman cistern or something or bath. Uh,
1: what? Yes, the Basilica cistern. Um, yeah. yeah, near the Hagia Sophia. That's
0: a beautiful site. Oh, amazing. Well, let's do a little spelunking into the history of ancient Rome, and it'd be great if you could kick us off with the 101, just a brief overview of the period of Roman history we're going to be talking about today, and maybe discuss how the ancient Roman economy operated generally, and in terms of what we, we might um, today call the profession of a physician.
1: Sure. So, so the period that I research that I've been looking at is what we call the imperial period. So this is defined uh, as the time when Augustus became the first emperor in 27 uh, BCE, and and that's that's equivalent to BC uh, for your listeners who are more familiar with the second second term. But really, uh, where I'm focused is you know first um, you know for four centuries of the Common Era. And at this point in time, particularly in the second century, Rome is as big and as sprawling and as powerful as it's ever going to be. And so one of the things about the expansion of the empire is that as Rome is taking over all of these different territories uh, and securing them, adding them to their empire, they're able to add these territories uh, and everything in it uh, into this sort of umbrella that is the Roman Empire. And. And so you have an increasing um, increasingly complicated trade network, road system, shipping routes. Uh, and this is allowing for the movement of goods and people, but it's also allowing for ideas to travel along these roads. And you know, the transmission of knowledge is moving along uh, with these people in this network. So what we see um, in not just in terms of medicine but in many aspects of roman culture they are borrowing ideas architecture um, different sort of even um, governmental administration uh, you know sort of paradigms from the greek culture and that's what we see with medicine in ancient rome is this is a field that uh, really has its genesis in the greek culture Um, and the greeks themselves are you know gathering information from cultures that are even older still. So you know nothing nothing comes to being in a vacuum. Uh, everything is built upon that which came before. Uh, and certainly Roman medicine, such as it was, um, was you know sort of a work in progress. Um, and physicians in the Roman Empire, if they were not Greek themselves, um, and many of them were, they either trained in Greece or had Greek teachers um, for the most part. So we see in, you know, even though it is, you know, Latin is the lingua franca of the Roman Empire in this period, most of the physicians that we encounter, at least in the archeological record, um, have Greek associations. So, you know, Greek names, their medicine bottles are labeled in Greek. Um, And Greek, of course, during the Roman imperial period, Greek was the language of the elite and the educated classes as well. Um, That's not to say all physicians were were educated or even literate necessarily. Um, But there does seem to be a very strong association with the Greek medical tradition that is sort of imported into the Roman culture. And the Romans actually did this deliberately in the 3rd century BCE. There was a plague, an epidemic in Rome proper, uh, and they imported the Greek god Asclepios, the god of medicine, from Greece into Rome uh, and Asclepius is one of those deities that kept his name when he made the leap from Greek to Roman culture and they established a temple dedicated to Asclepius on Tiber Island in the in the center of the uh, river that runs through Rome so it was really you know I like to think that they they deliberately imported Greek medicine or at least the the deity uh, and in the third century BCE, and it sort of developed from there
0: how did the plague end up? Did, did, did Asclepius do his work or? <laughs> did
1: Eventually.
0: His agents on, on earth do right. war, do you think?
1: <laughs> well, and you know, it, up until fairly recently, you know, in human history, um, plague, epidemic, pandemic outbreaks, these events had to sort of run their course. Um, and at this particular one, we think it was, uh, either typhus or typhoid.
2: Um,
1: but uh, yes eventually things settled down and they now had uh, a deity to to whom they could appeal uh, when things like this happened Um, and over time you start to see doctors from the Greek East coming into the Western part of the empire and then, of, or the Western part of what was then a Republic. Um, and so by the time we get to the period that we're discussing, the Imperial period, uh, you had uh, what we call, we refer to it as Greco-Roman medicine because it's really sort of, um, it, it's become more empire wide.
0: Got it. And so it sounds like from the way you've explained it, that, um, that medicine in ancient Rome really emerged through the combined effect of this plague and just the the extensive um, influence of of empire and other cultural influences that were coming into Rome as a result?
1: It's, It's fair to say that medicine as we know it in imperial Rome has its genesis in Greece.
0: Great. Well, let's take a peek over the shoulder of one of our ancient Roman physicians, shall we? Yes. Yes. Uh, I have a fellow I would like to introduce you to. Oh, oh, an actual person. I love it when the conversation goes that way. It really gives us something to hang our hats on. Let's meet your physician.
1: Yes, this is a fun one. And we're, you know, it's, as you know, as an archaeologist, we're not always lucky enough to get details about the mm. individual lives mm. no. of, of <laughs> people in the sites that we are excavating.
0: Oh, that's why I love case, historic period archaeology. I have right. to say, I, I've got a soft spot for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it fills in a little bit more of those details that I think just, you know, you kind of, as humans, we want to connect with other humans, even if they came way before us. And in this case, we have a great opportunity to do that. Um, In a town called Rimini, which is on the northeastern coast of the Italian peninsula, um, there was a site that was discovered in 1989. By accident, they were conducting construction in one of their main piazzas. And they, they came upon the ruins of a Domus, which is an ancient Roman home. Uh, and over the almost, almost two decades of really beautifully done excavation work by um, a man named Jacopo Ortale from the University of Bologna and his team, they did a phenomenal job excavating a site that came to be called Domus del Chirurgo, the house of the surgeon. And in this house, they found almost 150 surgical instruments. Whoa. Uh, yes, it's an incredible case. Uh, it's that pretty much doubled the number of surgical instruments we have from this period in total. <laughs> um, and... In this site, there were a lot of clues as to the identity of this man and even what his name was. Um, On a piece of fresco that would have been uh, on the wall in what we call the cubiculum, the bedroom, there was a graffito, an inscription that someone had carved into the wall, and it said, Utiques is a good man. Uh, and it was signed one of the miserable ones. Uh, so, uh, this fellow was apparently so grateful to uh, Utiques and the work uh, that he did that he uh, carved his uh, carved his little.
0: Graffiti into the into the wall of his house. It's Like a, a, a good Yelp review, never hurts, even in ancient Rome.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah, exactly. So we believe this physician's name was Utiques, uh, and that this was the room in which his patients would stay as they were recovering. And just adjacent to that room uh, is another room that we call a medica taberna, the the clinic room. And both these two rooms, which you know were joined to each other, they were. Part of a much larger home, a very nice home, a very expensive home. Uh, so, this was clearly a physician who was good at his job.
0: That is so interesting. And of course, brings to mind immediate comparisons to kind of modern uh, doctors who uh, still are fortunate enough in some respects to have a, a home office, as they say. And I, you know, I think it's probably less common than it used to be. But I remember going to a doctor like that once upon a time. Um, And in Italy, that's still the case
1: uh, in some places. One of my friends there is a doctor and he runs his clinic out of, you know, uh, a set of rooms adjacent to his home, um, which is a more personal feel to it than than that which we have, uh, especially in this country. For
0: sure. So, Let's let's wake up one morning, please, with you to case one day when he is, um, you know, the doctor is in today. Um, What's his day start out like? What's he worried about? And what does he need to attend to right away?
1: so we um we don't have any written material from him and so what when we we talk about this we're sort of putting it together from other writings from other doctors what we know archaeologically so this is i'm just this, yeah yeah fair this enough sort of a hypothetical day <laughs> but in this the case of this physician in particular what's very interesting about this case of instruments is that they clearly indicate he was a specialist in trauma surgery. Uh, he had a great deal of experience in addressing traumatic injuries and wounds. And so it it is likely that the majority of his clientele you know let's say he wakes up in the morning uh, and he has someone show up at his door who has just been in a construction accident or uh, has had you know an accident with his horse his livestock he's somehow injured Uh, and this is where OT cases um Expertise would come in uh, in bone injuries, wounds, uh, this sort of thing. Um, that doesn't mean he didn't address illness. Uh, in fact, there were a great deal of um, medicine, you know, instruments that were used to make medicine. So he probably did. But I would imagine in a case like his, you may have scheduled clients, you know, where let's say a family member comes the day before says, you know, my mother is ill. Can you come to our home? or in the case of a serious injury, maybe so their friends bring them to Utiques' door. Uh, We know that doctors in ancient Rome, they often went to the homes of their patients in addition to having patients come to them and recover uh, in in their own home. So that would be spending a couple nights at your doctor's house so that he could keep an eye on you. there was only one cubiculum with only one bed, uh, so very likely Uthicke's performed his surgeries in this room, and you'd have one patient recovering at a time. But while that patient was recovering, uh, it's you know very probable that he could make rounds out in town, seeing other patients, uh, and. Because, of course, you don't have telephones, you don't have email, anything like this, you probably don't have a rigid appointment schedule uh, the way that you would today as a physician. So uh, I would imagine the course of his day was fairly fluid, depending on who knocks on his door.
0: Yeah, and it sounds almost like he operated a prototypical emergency room. It
1: certainly seems like that from the archaeological evidence, particularly these instruments that, you know, I mean, 150 is a, a huge it's astonishing number.
0: number of specialist artifacts. Yeah. C- could you tell us a little more detail about what? kind of of tools uh these these things were i mean sure
1: yes i'd love to because these to me these are really really interesting objects um first of all 150 as you notice you know that that's an extraordinary number of instruments for a physician to have in part because these are expensive. These are very specialized instruments um, that not every metal worker is capable of manufacturing. So they represent a pretty significant investment. And some of the types of objects we see in this collection would be, we have multiple scalpels Uh, And scalpel handles. For the most part, um, now certainly there's exceptions, but scalpels were made of different metals. The the handles would be made of bronze and the blade would be made of iron. Iron um, oxidizes more quickly uh, in... In soil so often when we're when we are excavating sites like this we're really just left with the bronze handles but they're pretty unmistakable we you know almost immediately what they are so you had multiple different types of scalpels forceps uh, arterial clamps uh, bone saws uh, to conduct amputations uh, catheters uh, you have these sort of metal spoons that were used to debride wounds. Um, and uh, there is also <laughs> a very intimidating looking bone axe. Uh, that would be for more serious, uh, well, very serious amputations. Uh, and one object, which is is truly it's sort of the, the unicorn of medical objects from this period, it's called a Diocles spoon. And until this site was discovered, uh, we only knew about this instrument from from literary sources. We had never found an example of it. Um, A Diocles spoon was uh, a spoon-shaped object, two of them, that would face each other. If you imagine an arrow, when an arrow uh, is designed, a lot of times the arrowheads would have barbs on them, and they're designed to cause as much damage coming out as they do going in. So, that was one of the problems that ancient Roman surgeons faced, particularly those who worked uh, with the legions, is to be able to extract the arrow without causing additional injury to the patient was a real challenge. And so, this instrument was designed so that you slide these two spoons down the shaft of the arrow into the wound use the spoon part oh, the round part to lever cu- yeah <laughs> well, to and it would cup around the arrow and create this smooth pod around the arrow head so that it could be extracted smoothly uh, and we had read about this in the literary sources but it wasn't until this site was discovered that we actually have an example of this object
0: wow that's, yeah, that's really very cool. cool. <laughs> and so how do you know that these particular uh, examples of clamps and saws and um, and metal spoons that I think you said were used to debride, you know, to clean up wounds, as opposed to this unicorn Diocles spoon, how do you know they're for medical purposes? What distinguishes them?
1: So that is a great question. And it's funny because I think as modern people, we, you know, we understand that our culture is so different from that uh, in antiquity. Language, technology, uh, the way that we think, our thought worlds, everything is so different, but what's not different is our physical bodies. And so these objects, when you, when you see them, they are virtually identical to the instruments that surgeons use today.
0: Oh, fascinating! They,
1: yeah, there. I mean, obviously, today they're manufactured out of different materials, but um, the 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 objects themselves, their design, are virtually identical. Uh, they're really quite unmistakable because the are the human body has not changed. A, really, in the last several thousand years.
0: So judging from the range and the quantity of the various different tools, surgical tools that were found at um, Udike's house, what kind of procedures would you imagine he would have been conducting most frequently?
1: He He was, and I want to be I want to be cautious with this term because in our modern time, you know, we have medical specialists, you know, we have pulmonary specialists, cardiologists, you know, but a specialization in medicine is a relatively recent phenomenon in the last maybe perhaps hundred years or so. Um, But if there was a version of a medical specialist in antiquity, Utikes is certainly an example. His collection of instruments skewed very heavily toward bone and trauma surgery. Um, It was clear that from these instruments that he would uh, have to deal with wounds that had already become infected. If you have to debride a wound, generally it's because it's already become infected. So someone is injured and it takes them a while to be able to uh, get get to him. The other thing that is very common, and we see this in collections of medical instruments uh, in other sites as well, it seems that the Romans had a problem uh, with uh, kidney stones. That seemed to be a very common condition. Um, So you have instruments that were used, in in two cases, collection instruments that were used to address kidney stones and remove uh, bladder stones. And um, the other thing that ancient Romans seemed to really have an issue with were hemorrhoids. So, <laughs> in instruments that were used to remove hemorrhoids uh, as well are almost always in collections of medical instruments that we find. And that's certainly the case with the TKs. So, um, with one exception, Boutiques, I think, could be considered, you know, a one-stop shop. He, you know, if you had an illness, you could go to him. You know, we, there were certainly evidence of various medicines, um, surgical issues, um, and the one exception is interesting. Sometimes, as you know, what you don't find is just as telling as what you do. And one of the things that is missing from this collection are gynecological specula. Uh, um, which tells us that Dutiques probably did not treat uh, any sort of um, issues, gynecological issues or, or birth. That was probably not something he was involved in because in physicians collections who assist in birth, um, you will almost always find gynecological specula or forceps um, used to uh, Presumably, help with the delivery. Although at that point, it's things are getting pretty rough. Uh, yeah. but, 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 but we don't have anything in, in this collection that indicates Utike's tr- treated this aspect of female health. It's not to say he couldn't treat a woman who had an injury, um, but there's nothing to indicate that that women um, and you know sort of women's health issues surrounding pregnancy and childbirth were were part of his wheelhouse
0: would Eudicase have gotten these specialist tools, do you think?
1: So One of the great things about this site is, because it was excavated so well, they were able to glean some other clues as to who this man was and how he might have developed his expertise and accumulated all these tools. In one of the core in the corridor outside this Medica Taberna, this clinic room, they found several weapons that were characteristic of those used by Roman soldiers in the third century. And I should have mentioned this earlier. This is a third century site, uh, we believe from about the middle of the third century. It's very likely that these weapons belonged to him. The fact that he had such extensive expertise in trauma surgery tells us that he very likely worked with the Roman legions uh, and was attached to the army for at least a, a good portion of his career. Because in antiquity, in the Roman period, that was the best way to get your experience with human anatomy. They did not perform dissections on human cadavers as part of their training. And the ancient writers, uh, there's actually a passage in one of the ancient texts that says, look, if you want to become good at anatomy, you should join the army. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah i bet
0: they saw yeah. every manner of wound
1: absolutely you get your uh you basically learn on the job <laughs> so to speak
0: um you know
1: when i sort of characterize you know what we know of Greco-Roman medicine their their surgery was relatively sophisticated you know more so than than one might think um but if you don't have effective tools to combat shock and infection, (laughs) uh, you know, it's the, your surgery can be as sophisticated as it can, but if if you you do
0: the fix and then you lose them to the aftermath. So I'd love to actually ask you about that a little bit, you know, how efficacious do we believe that these procedures that ancient Roman physicians were undertaking actually were and for example yeah infection did they did they have any concept of it whatsoever
1: they absolutely did um they they certainly understood uh infection as uh you know sort of as as a medical situation as a paradigm and that's not to say they understood what caused infection you know germ theory did not did not really come into existence until the middle of the 19th century. So, so while they may not have understood the mechanism of infection, they certainly understood its cause and effect or rather its effect. uh, And they understood the situations in which it could come about. And so the, um, in terms of efficacious surgical procedures, there is a, a fair amount of evidence to suggest that if the patient could survive shock and infection, the, the procedures themselves uh, were efficacious, could could be quite efficacious. Um, cataract removal, for example, was something that was pretty common and done wow that sounds so kind of
0: bold (laughs) doesn't it yeah yeah
1: yeah Yeah, um cut uh,
0: right into the eyeball there it'll be fine
1: (laughs) right just just pull that out and uh and they did it and and they did it fairly effectively
0: so sarah when infection did set in did they have any way to combat it
1: So certainly the Romans didn't have the range of antibiotics that we're lucky enough to have today, but they were not helpless. Um, They were not powerless in, you know, when confronting infection. One of the things that they had in their arsenal was cinnamon. And, you know, today we put cinnamon in a lot of things. Now it's fall, it's cinnamon season. We yeah. put it in our lattes and sure our cookies is. and, um, and I love cinnamon, but, and the, but the Romans had it. They did not use it in their food. It was a medicine for them. And what, what modern science has discovered about cinnamon is that the oil that, that is, you know, can be produced from the bark. It, Contains what's called cinnamic acid. Cinnamic acid is almost identical molecularly to phenol, which was one of the pioneering antiseptics of the 19th century. So it's it remarkable. Can, yeah, so it, it could actually function as a sort of antiseptic. And so that was one of the reasons why cinnamon was prized uh, in the Roman period. And one of some of the other substances, and, and I think you know most people will have heard of the nativity story. From the book of Matthew, right? The Magi come and bearing frankincense and myrrh, and um, you know, sort of that's the traditional Nativity story. And I always wondered as a kid, like, why incense? Why was incense yeah, such that a big stuff? deal?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it <laughs> like, sounds exotic.
1: <laughs> it certainly does, and and in fact, it is. Frankincense only grows in a very limited region in the world um, in Yemen primarily, uh, and that was the same in antiquity. But um, there, you know, they, it was not prized in antiquity because it smelled nice. Uh, it was prized as a medicine and a very valuable one. And what we now know about myrrh um, and frankincense is that chemically, they are bacteriostatics, and that means that they inhibit bacteria from replicating. Um, and so they could be very useful agents in wound treatment. So we know that they had that in their arsenal. Uh, and then another substance, and this, this is a funny one, uh, it's always kind of a head scratcher, but it's, it's kind of fun as well. They, the medical texts talk about a substance called castioreum. Castioreum was a substance that contains both salicylic acid, which is uh, aspirin, also hydrosinamic acid. So uh, a very close cousin to cinamic acid, which is, you know, has antiseptic properties. So this substance had both of these in it. And what is this substance? This substance is produced by the glands
0: of a beaver.
1: What? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Wow, it's a, it's a head that's scratcher. a leaf from cinnamon bark. Okay, right,
1: right. And I always think about this. You know, who is the person that got a hold of this substance and thought, "I'm just going to put that on my cut and see what happens." <laughs>
0: you hear about you know, it's like you got your chocolate in my peanut butter and that was in an accident and, and the, the Reese's peanut butter cup is born, but how does somebody get their wound into the gland of a beaver? Right. <laughs> that's exactly. quite amazing. Yeah,
1: or like or like, you know, I oysters. Who is the first person that opened an oyster? No, oh, it's just and a thought, very
0: brave person. Yeah, Ooh, looks like, delicious.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, that that is probably that. well, that looks good to eat. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing, you know, it was someone who was observing they were really
0: hungry. Yeah,
1: hungry, <laughs> watching animals. Eat it, and and that may in fact be how Romans or humans, not just Romans, but you know cultures even prior to ancient Rome by observing animals in the natural world and how they, uh, you know, interacted with the flora and different substances around them when they were injured. That may be one of the ways that humans got the idea. Um, But yeah, that, that was a leap for sure. Um, But (laughs) once they figured it out, it, it was a substance that could be quite
0: helpful. The clearly had a really well-stocked surgery. Um, Any ideas about how he sourced his, his tools and his medicines. There, um, there is a site in
1: Turkey called Alianoi. It's about 18 kilometers Northwest of ancient Pergamon, uh, where they found almost 350 medical instruments or, you know, uh, not just instruments, but Artifacts, so medicine jars, this sort of thing, and what it looks like is Algonoy was a town in which it, it, there was a booming medical economy, where you have oh, wow. medicines being brought in. You know, we were talking earlier about that massive trade network established by the Romans. So there, you know, there was a, a, a huge jar. Um, Called a pithos that they found that could that contained about or would have contained about 50 liters of um, an ointment made from frankincense. Oh my that,
0: that that's like mass production. <laughs> exactly. Sounds-
1: Factory.
0: Factory style. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Wow. That is a whole lot more than a single doctor is going to be using. So clearly what we have is, you know, this is a place where doctors could get supplies. This is where they could get medicines that have been imported from you know the area that's now the middle east Um, and the tools themselves you know as we were talking about earlier these are very specialized instruments um, some of them and they would have been expensive to procure and also difficult to produce we don't have a lot of information about Who was making these instruments? Who was actually executing the design? Uh, My guess is that for some of the the more complicated ones, uh, they would have been
0: jewelers. Oh, interesting!
1: Yeah, but it makes sense, doesn't it? It does, especially when you see these objects and how beautifully designed some of them are. They have these beautiful um, decorations on them. Um, some of them are inlaid with gold and silver. So they weren't. Some of these objects were not just designed to be functional; they were designed to be beautiful as well. And we know that physicians themselves would create designs and then take them to metal workers to be executed and the reason we know this is because of a second century physician named galen we have a lot of writings of his that are that have still survived so he tells us a lot about what the medical landscape looks like in the second century Uh, and he talks about wax models that he created that he would bring to a metalsmith to be executed. And that's how, you know, that's one of the ways that we understand how these designs came to be, you know, physicians who are using these instruments thinking, okay, well, you know, this works okay, but if I just tweak this and tweak that, it could work even better. Uh, And so they would design models uh, out of wax and have them executed by metalsmiths.
0: Oh, it's so interesting that they were driving new technology really to better support the practice of their of their profession exactly yeah and so obviously there are all of these specialized tools and and the medicinal items that they're sourcing to give to their patients did they did they have the equivalent of the white coat that we think about doctors today?
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, what, how did they? You know, how did you? How could you pinpoint or pick out a
0: doctor in yeah, a crowd? Yeah, could you have right? seen a doctor on the on, in the forum? <laughs> right. Oh, doctor, doctor.
1: <laughs> right. Do you have any oil of cinnamon on you? Um, as far as we know, there is not a specific garment. Um, that that a doctor would wear and as you can imagine you know surgery in particular is a very messy process (laughs) so um, my my guess (laughs) is that they are going to be dressing in clothing that is either easily washable or disposable Um, so no as far as we know there's no specific uniform that would connote a a physician or
0: doctor it seems as if they they were well respected people certainly paid well for their services if UTKs is anyone one to, to to be as an example. So some of them
1: certainly uh some of them did come to be well respected uh and could have become you know in his case uh became quite wealthy others not so much uh and one one of the sites that gives us some insight into sort of the Stratification of the profession, if you will, is is Pompeii, where there are a handful of different areas in the, the ancient city of Pompeii where we believe medical practitioners had practices. And some of them are in more wealthy areas, uh, in nicer buildings. Some are, you know, in sort of the shady part of town, you know, a single room, uh, not very refined. Uh, and so clearly you had stratification within the profession. Now, whether or not we can interpret that as being a direct correlation to skill, um, probably, I mean, certainly it may have been a factor, but there were a lot of other factors at play as well. So just because someone was very wealthy and had a clinic doesn't necessarily mean he would be a skilled physician in the sense that we would consider um, a physician to be skilled.
0: Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how one would become a doctor in ancient Rome. You did mention at the beginning that they tended to... Uh, have some kind of Greek connection, either be Greek or a Greek teacher, you know, were there any apprenticeships such as we would think about it? Or if not, how did this knowledge migrate? It's interesting because there were, there were many paths to
1: to becoming a physician in ancient Rome and certainly apprenticeship would have been one of them. Um, the easiest and, you know, I would imagine uh, probably the least ethical as we would consider it today would be just to acquire tools and declare yourself a doctor. I mean, it really could be that easy. Just
0: hang out your uh, shingle. Did yeah. they do that? It was speaking of Pompeii, right? You could just sort of paint the picture whether it was a brothel or a restaurant or a doctor's office, right? You just, absolutely. you put the right symbol out and you know, yeah. you come to the right place. <laughs> Use
1: a pictogram because, you know, especially in a city like Pompeii where there's so many different languages because it's a port city, you know, not everyone spoke the same language or we even literate so yeah just just put a put a picture out there (laughs) advertise Um, and and that actually became a popular thing it became a popular profession because up until the middle of the second century from about the time of Julius Caesar in the middle of the first century BCE to the middle of the second century CE doctors got tax exemptions from the they state had
0: tax breaks they wow. got tax breaks tell and, us about that that's an incentive
1: um, it, it was and and so you know during caesar's time it was recognized that you know it's probably a good idea to have some people who are you know reasonably good at dealing with illness and injury and and they offered doctors tax exemptions so they they got out of some of their uh some of the civic responsibilities that that otherwise they might have had. And by the second century, there were so many doctors (laughs) who, you know, probably declaring themselves doctors in order to have this tax benefit that the emperor Antoninus Pius said, right, okay, no more. <laughs> loopholes um, closed. <laughs> loopholes closed.
2: Big cities
1: can have 10 doctors that are tax exempt. Medium cities can have seven, small towns can have five, and that's it. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't have more doctors, but only a handful of you get tax exemptions. And so um, so prior to Antoninus Pius's decree, you, you really would have a lot of people just declaring themselves doctors. But, in terms of actual training, you know if you wanted to be good at it and you wanted to be successful at it, um, there were a couple avenues. one you know was to go into the military uh, and work with the legions. you would train under other surgeons, and you would get probably your best anatomical training uh, that could be had at the time. Uh, another avenue was to simply apprentice yourself to uh, another physician. And Galen, our friend Galen, he traveled to Alexandria, Egypt, and spent five years training there. Oh, wow. Because Alexandria had, a, as you know, a very famous library. I was
0: going to say, did he go to the, um, did he have a library card? <laughs>
1: right, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be a great card to have, wouldn't
0: it? Oh, so, I, that would be like my dream come true. Man. Right.
1: <laughs> I think for most historians, you know, what did we lose? Um, Probably good but, we don't know. Yeah, exactly. Ignorance is bliss in this case. But uh, so they had a, a medical library medical collections where we know that famous physicians would come um, not only to to study themselves, but to perform medical demonstrations. So if you were wealthy, as Galen was, he came from a wealthy family in Pergamon. uh, And so you could travel there and learn from these physicians who um, were part of this library or who would travel to this library also. So it was sort of a, let's say a salon for physicians who wanted to learn from the best. One of the sites that I have been uh, researching and that I'll be working on in Turkey next year is called Rodeoopolis, also in Turkey. And it looks like there was a fairly substantial medical library established there where perhaps they may also have had medical instruction and demonstrations. And so you know we're still investigating that, but the early data are very promising. Um, so there were mechanisms to receive a more formal type of training. Um, however, it was that was up to the individual. There was no uh, professional consortium or licensing body, and certainly no imperial oversight so in terms of standards <laughs> Uh, it was really up to the individual to, to pursue a good education and, and solid training or not, uh, and, then, and then leave it up to the free market <laughs> to determine if they were going to be successful.
0: Well, it sounds like it, and it just makes me wonder, given this wide range of what one might get... Knocking on the door of somebody proclaiming themselves to be a physician, what? Yeah, what was sort of society's view of these people?
1: Today, we look at, you know, doctors occupy, I think, a very sort of elevated niche in our society. We respect them; they have a lot of training. You know, it's a desirable field. Not everyone is capable of doing it. Um, in ancient Rome, doctors were viewed differently. It was considered uh, they were considered working class if you had to work for a living first of all, that in and of itself excluded you from the elite class and so one of the most famous physicians was uh, started out as a slave. Uh, his name was uh, antonius Musa. he was the physician to the emperor augustus really yeah, so he was a, he was uh, a freed slave who was Augustus's personal physician. Uh, And the story goes is that he cured Augustus of this recurrent fever. And Augustus was so grateful that he really elevated Antonius Musa um, in the imperial court. Um, So physicians could occupy various strata of Roman society. Some were actually still slaves. They were Greek slaves in the household of a Roman Family, aristocratic family, that doesn't mean that they weren't excellent physicians. Some of them were excellent. They just held the social, um, they were in this slave class. Others could move in quite high circles. Galen, for example, was born to an aristocratic family uh, and he was part of the imperial court at various times in his career. He traveled to the frontier with Marcus Aurelius, the emperor at the end of the second century. So um, these are, you know, they could occupy various strata of Roman society. It wasn't quite, uh, it wasn't a static sort of specialized social class.
0: That's really interesting. And of course it makes me immediately want to ask, what about gender? Is there any evidence for women Having been involved in any capacity in ancient Roman medicine? Yes, there is. There are,
1: we have a handful of cases where it appears that women did practice, uh, particularly um, when it comes to medicines. In terms of surgery, we don't have a lot of evidence for that, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. You know, we're we're really limited by what. What we have, which of course is only, and we don't know what we don't know, (laughs) if that makes sense. Um, But where women were, seemed to really play quite a a major role is in childbirth. So midwives, um, and that was definitely um, a field in in ancient Rome. You know, you'd have women in the community who would assist other women with pregnancies and childbirth. Uh, So they really had a role to play there. And you know these sort of that that archetype of the the village wise woman who understood the, the, the various properties of herbs and plants and who could you know dispense different medications to people in her community, do we know
0: how ancient Roman physicians were paid? were they paid
1: so it seems that they they, they would have been paid in some form or fashion by their patients. Now, I would imagine that that would have been up to the individual physician. Did he want to be paid in actual coins? Did he want to be paid in product uh, or in a service if they were exchanging surface, surfaces? I would imagine that all three of those those paradigms existed. Um, certainly in the case of Utike's, uh, he was making money in the form of currency, not just because he had such a nice property that he clearly would have had to pay for, but they did find a cache of over 80 coins. Oh, wow. Also, yeah. So His and, cash register. Exactly. <laughs> it Precisely. Yeah. And they were all in one place, you know, you know, in probably in a, a jar um, for that had broken, um, so he clearly had cash on hand, <laughs> that was, um, and he was being paid by at least some of his patients that way. Now, if you remember uh, when we were talking about those physicians who had tax-exempt status, in exchange for that, they were expected to provide some services to poorer members of the community uh, without charging them.
0: Was there any indication of these physicians working together, or was it largely a solitary affair as far as the evidence you've seen suggests?
1: Um, Up until fairly recently, we didn't have a lot of evidence for collaborative practices. Uh, The exception being military hospitals, where you would have had multiple physicians working in you know what's called a valetudinarium which is a hospital uh, but in terms of say group practice in the way that we conceive of it um Illinois, the site that i mentioned in turkey is maybe our best case study for this the excavators uh, excavated a building in which multiple rooms that were all sort of contiguous with each other, attached to each other. In each room, there were different collections of surgical instruments for different specialties. So for example, one room, there were instruments for lithotomies, which would be bladder and kidney stone removal. Uh, Another room had instruments clearly Used to address wounds, to sew up wounds, to sut- sutures. Uh, another was for hemorrhoid removal. So, so one of the theories that the excavators put forward is, you know, are we looking at a group practice where you have different physicians in each of these rooms, and you know, sort of each one specializing, um, or are we looking at a complex where they're selling these instruments, you know, because you have multiple ah, of the right. same instruments. Okay. So, you know, whether or not it was a group practice in the sense that we conceive of it, where all these different doctors are in business together, it's impossible to know. But almost certainly you have uh, situations in which, you know, maybe they're not in a single practice, but maybe they're all in the same building. Maybe each one has a different, you know, room in a building. If you know there's a city like Illinois where you have all of these doctors, that may be a good place to go. If you need a medical issue addressed, it might bring in more patients um, if if a town has that kind of reputation that Illinois seems to have had. And um, there's a a really sort of hilarious inscription uh, from Southern Italy, and it actually dates from the third century BC. So it's older than the period that we're talking about, but it's a curse. This this patient was so irate that he paid uh, a stonemason to make an inscription where he curses seventeen different doctors oh, from this oh. town. <laughs> so, it's a you know, dissatisfied customer, very angry customer, um, and you know. So, of course, in in reference to your question, what we would be looking at is the fact that there are seventeen different doctors that this man. Uh, interacted with in this one town. So is this a single practice, or did he just go from doctor to doctor to doctor? Uh, we don't know, but certainly um, it, it, it seems quite probable, if not certain, that you would have had collaborative practices in, in the Roman period,
0: um, because we know it's also happening in the military. What were the risks of being a physician in ancient Rome? And, you know, I guess what's the biggest mistake one could make?
1: Well, I mean, it was certainly risky just being human in ancient Rome, right? I mean, (laughs) fair fair (laughs) enough. um, And as doctors in particular, um, you know, surgery is a risk to the patient um, much more so than the physician. But I think where being a physician in ancient Rome becomes very dangerous is when you're dealing with disease. Galen w- lived through a period in which a pandemic event occurred that we call the Antonine Plague. And Galen wrote up case studies. He made observations of patients who suffered from this disease. And Galen was frightened. Um, they didn't understand how the mechanism of contagion, but they, could, they were certainly could observe that if you come into contact with a person who's sick, you are more likely to get sick yourself. Um, and that just sort of common sense. And so Galen was so distressed by the way that this disease presented, uh, that he left Rome. Uh, oh, wow. He he went back to Pergamon until a couple years later the emperor said, You need to get back here. Because he waited it out. <laughs> well, he wanted to, but Marcus Aurelius recalled him. <laughs> he would get back here because we have a problem and we need you to help us deal with it. Oh, wow. So um so I think that being a physician in antiquity um your biggest risk would be the exposure to these communicable diseases that
0: that could be quite deadly. How were Roman doctors in general expected to respond in a case of say plague? So in
1: the case of Galen, he, the emperors made it clear that he was expected to come back to the Italian peninsula and help them deal with it in, in as much as one could. Um, but with events like that, the, this particular plague, we are almost certain was a smallpox outbreak. And there really is nothing that ancient Roman physicians have in their arsenal that can combat a disease as savage as smallpox. They are able to make the connections that, so look, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, you have soldiers in barracks. They're living in very dense conditions where you have a, a high density of people in smaller, more confined spaces. Let's spread them out. Let's, and and the Romans were already very good at at, you know, they understood. Sanitation, you know, Galen makes these recommendations of, you know, we need to uh, limit the contact with the victims, uh, the deceased victims, um, bury them expediently or cremate them rather uh, expediently. Um, So again, while he doesn't understand the mechanism of contagion, you know, germs, uh, viruses, any of these things, he's able to observe how the diseases spread um, and also make observations based on the symptoms, what the, you know, what the likely chances are of an individual surviving or not. Um, this particular uh, pandemic, it had about a 30% mortality rate. So 30% oh, wow. of the people who contracted the disease would have perished. So even the emperor understood that in the face of a disease like this, there is really no magic bullet. Uh, in this in this case, the role of the physician would be to offer advice regarding preventing, uh, you know, the prevention of communicability or the, the prevention of um, communicating this disease. Um, and also just to offer support to the patient in the way of, you know, sort of comfort, keeping them hydrated and this sort of thing. Uh, In the hopes that their bodies will eventually overcome the virus. But when in the case of these pandemic events, you know, there was another one hemorrhagic fever in the third century, the bubonic plague in the sixth century, they really had very few tools in their arsenal to deal with diseases like that. But, in the sense of you know what we 're seeing today, where you know doctors are you know, sort of working heroically round the clock, uh, caring for patients, uh, other doctors you know specialists are in the lab around the clock, working on you know, trying to develop treatments and vaccines, we don't see anything even close to that type of organization uh, in antiquity. But really what we see at the Imperial level is the government scrambling to deal with the fallout of the disease rather than the disease itself. So, you know, the is tanking because the tax revenues are down, <laughs> because uh, cities um, and economies are destabilizing. Uh, the, the army is hit quite hard with the disease. So Marcus Aurelius is scrambling to augment the numbers uh, in his legions so that he can maintain the borders. But in terms of the expectation placed upon doctors, it seems to be fairly well understood that in the in the face of this type of event, um, uh, diseases as aggressive as the smallpox and hemorrhagic fever or the plague, that really all the doctors can do is offer what supportive care they can to the patient. Um, And in many cases, the doctors themselves are, well, in all cases, the doctors themselves are just as susceptible to the disease. Um, And in many cases, at a certain point, They don't want anything to do with it (laughs) because they realize that there's nothing that they can do, uh, and they also see firsthand how deadly it is.
0: I mean, we we've talked about such an incredible range of really interesting topics today. I wonder if there are fascinating questions that you still have about this job as it was performed in the past. And you know, do you think we can ever answer those questions?
1: (laughs) I am very interested to know what the medical economy looked like, what, what did the supply and demand for medications and instrument fabrication um, look like? Was Illinois, this, this amazing site in Turkey, was it a site of medical tourism? It certainly seems to have been. It had thermal baths. Um, it clearly had a, a, a medical market uh, so to speak, with, with so many medical objects found in different parts of the town. Um, so I would really love to get to a point where we can put together different snapshots of, okay, this this is what... This is what a medical town looked like—a site of, like a, a site of medical tourism, if you will. Um, this is what private practices look like. I think we have a great snapshot of that with Utiques, our fellow in Rimini. I would love more information about more doctors uh, and more practices, so that we can we are able to maybe start to get at you know how unique is Utiques, how unique is Alionoi. Um, did we just get really lucky and these are pretty unique cases, or is this fairly typical? Uh, also, I think I'd really love to know how, what the role of libraries were in training, you know, was this library in um like, was this typical of towns? Did every town have medical collections as part of their library. We know that a lot of Greco-Roman towns had libraries. Was it standard to have medical texts in them? How accessible was this information? Um, It seems that medical libraries might be more common than we once thought, Um, but we have to keep excavating to know. (laughs) Oh
0: yeah, oh, so many great questions. Well, I am glad you are on the case because uh, we're gonna have to check back in with you and, and see your latest. This has been so fascinating. Um, but I have one more question. I have one more question for you, Sarah. Would you have made a good physician in ancient Rome?
1: (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it because they, um, being a physician in ancient Rome was a, it could be a very Corey job <laughs> so you know just if you you look at these array of instruments um from the rimini site you know the bone saws and the axe and all yeah. of this i i think i would find that very intimidating um and a bit overwhelming and uh i think what i would have what i may well have been drawn to I th- would be the pharmacology aspect of it you know which which herbs might be effective against certain conditions and and, and how that could be how those might be deployed to treat certain conditions um, but I think you know even then I may have made a better historian than a physician. <laughs> I I think I found the correct niche but but what I love and what I've always loved is science um, so it it for me that you know science as it existed in antiquity so my two passions when studying ancient rome are you know ancient roman medicine and ancient roman astronomy and and so how these sciences develop um, and and i think also one of the things that really i am drawn to about it is because the concern of, about health and disease, illness, injury, even though our culture is completely different than, than those of the ancient Rome, than that of the ancient Romans, these are things we have in common. You know, these are very human things. Oh,
0: fundamental. Yeah. Um, and
1: so you know, we don't speak Latin, you know, we don't live in the context of ancient Rome, but in, in these types of situations, in these in this particular context, we can understand what an ancient Roman man or woman might be going through if they were injured or ill, or had a family member that was injured or ill. These are it's a fundamental part of being human, um, and you know, same with the night sky, contemplating you know the, the stars. These are things that humans have always done. So, um, I think it's one way to sort of connect with
0: the past. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Uh, I learned so much and um, I wish you the best of luck in continuing to unravel the puzzle of medical economies in the ancient world.
1: Thank you so much. This has been really fun. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that, that I have found so interesting.
0: For those of us fortunate enough to have access to modern healthcare. care, A checkup with the doctor is as routine as grocery shopping. Few of us ever stop to think of the origins of medical care in the style we've come to expect. The physicians of the distant past who paved the way and saved lives with surprisingly effective treatments. Just like Sarah said, there's still a lot we don't know about the work and lives of these ancient doctors, but we know enough to say that without the foundation put into place by physicians like them, Western medicine as we know it might never have advanced to where it is today. We owe a lot to those ancient doctors who tested, observed, and fretted for countless hours, seeking ways to alleviate their patient's suffering and to save lives just as they do today. They may not have had the knowledge or technologies we have today, but they sure as heck had the passion. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
2: Hey, fellow time traveler. You can follow today's guest, Sarah Yeomans, at Archeogirl1 on Twitter and Instagram. As always, we're on social media at Working OT Series with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Until next week. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network. It is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Over Time Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.